I met my best friend Anne in 1985. And the Babysitter's Club kept her friendship alive. Then Emily was born in 1988. And she said, Thanks, Aunt Esme. These books are great. Now we're all grown up and we're living our dreams. As a writer and a scholar and an expert on teens. And we're gonna start again from the very first book because we're stuck. Welcome to Stuck in Stony Brook, a podcast about the Babysitter's Club. Today we're discussing book 24, Christy and the Mother's Day Surprise. Woo, surprise. It's Mother's Day. Um, Okay, our one sentence summaries. So mine is, Christy and the members of the BSC spend the entire book talking about Mother's Day and how they're all going to surprise their moms. And then kind of feel bad about Marianne not having a mom, but then go back to planning their big Mother's Day surprise. <laughs> I think that's the longest sentence summary you've done so far. Yeah. <laughs> uh, mine is the dads of Stony Brook deign to participate in, ma- in making arrangements for someone else to watch their children to give the moms a break for one day. <laughs> also, it's not even one day. It's like six hours half a day <laughs> yeah <laughs> for a single afternoon <laughs> i love the dane too um okay mine is christy's big heart and big ideas are on full display as she and the club organize a fun day off for the mothers of stony brook and her family adopts emily michelle neither of you mentioned emily michelle uh well y- you uh ruined the surprise thanks <laughs> yeah, we're, we're gonna get there <laughs> Okay, we should probably back up and tell you about the members of the podcast. I'm Esme Schaller, an adolescent psychologist, kind of bossy, and I have a big heart. I'm Emily Crandall, a feminist scholar. I'm a total individual, and I like health food. <laughs> and I'm Annie Chikawa, a freelance writer. I'm a mischievous pragmatist with a sweet tooth. If you want to learn more about us and how we know each other, check out our prologue episode. Also, rate and review us. It really helps people find the podcast. And if you have any questions, comments, or commentary about anything BSA-related, Drop us a line at stuckinstonybrook at gmail.com. Emily, it seems like you have a lot to say about this book. It was inevitable, given that Mother's <laughs> Day is in the title. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah, I mean, I was really interested. So Christy opens this book with this sort of like philosophical rumination on like what makes a family. And there's like a way in which this book, and we've talked about this before, kind of like celebrates non-traditional blended families but at the same time we've also talked about heteronormativity before Mm -hmm. like the heteronormativity of it all is just like disgusting in this book it's Mm -hmm. like god the the way that they talk about the dads is just like horrifying like Mm -hmm. i don't know do you think we can get the dads to participate and like will they will they watch the kids for what what about the kids that don't want to go who will watch them like maybe the dads i don't know that might be too much to ask it's just like (laughs) are you fucking kidding me and then they're like mr they're like oh mr kishi is it okay will you drive the lunches and he's like yeah it's fine whatever what am i supposed to do again it's like come on man he doesn't ask what am i supposed to do again they anxiously are like are you sure it's okay mr kishi don't you don't have to throw mr kishi under the bus (laughs) (laughs) well i mean regardless of whether this hesitation around involving the dads is comes from the girl's own worries about navigating that space or like the dad's sort of making that their 
you know, cultivating the kind of atmosphere where that's how they act around them, it's still the same, right? Like it doesn't matter which direction it's coming from. The effect is still like childcare is not the realm of dads. (laughs) Right. Well, I was wondering, have we, has a, has a dad ever called the BSC? Like so far in 24 books, have we seen a dad call to set up a sitter? No. I mean, like when they talk about people calling it's always the mom and then of course there's the calls that they don't talk about so like ostensibly there's a dad making a call sort of like off screen but like Mm -hmm. it's never been a plot point Mm -hmm. at this point yeah yeah and like even you know Anne mentioned Marianne's sort of like sadness around Mother's Day in this book and near the end she decides she's going to get a Mother's Day present for Mr. Spear which is like kind of cool right she's like oh he's been a mother to me really and a father um Mm -hmm. but i was like god this i don't know there's really an upholding of the kind of sanctity of motherhood as this like exalted um state of being and there i don't know that all these Mm -hmm. women like the reward is like a I don't know. It was really weird to me, but I loved the opening question, right? Like what makes a family, right? Like the literal opening sentence of this book is I've been thinking about families lately, lately wondering what makes one. And then like, is a, is a family really a mother, a father and a kid or two? I hope not because if so, like that's not what mine is, which incorrect by the way, hers is <laughs> that. <laughs> yeah. That's what I got confused. I was like, well, you're describing a pretty uh, ideal family right now. Like sure. You have divorced parents. Well, that's what she means. She means that she doesn't have her father and like Karen and Andrew don't have their mother. Like that's what she's talking about. Yes, it's still a heterosexual family. It's just blended instead of everybody being. Yeah, but it's like, I mean, this is BSC, but it's like the perfect blended family, you know? Yeah, super idyllic. Yeah. They have a Shannon the puppy, you know, running around. Boo, don't forget Boo Boo the cat. And Boo Boo the cat. <laughs> <laughs> They're part of the family and too. And a new Asian baby. Yeah. And a new Asian, I know, right? It's like. Well, she does go on though to talk about like also the members of the BSC as her family and and yeah. that's an extension of it. So I, I was left, it was interesting to me and I'd like to hear more from you about this, Emily, you know, Anna Martin as a lesbian writer writing about this and writing kind of just up to the edge, but not, and look, it would have been bonkers in 1989 to address a a lesbian family in a super mainstream book like the BSC. Like I would, would have loved to see it, but I can't like, that was not happening. So, um, and I don't think that like the scholastic book club would have put out a book like that. So I get why she didn't, but it's very interesting that it's like, right up to the line there. I thought of the, um, you know, Armistead Maupin from Tales of the City. Like I thought of his quote of like, you have your biological family and you have your logical family mm-hmm. uh, of like the idea of, of chosen family. And, and I thought that Christy really was sort of describing that when she was describing the members of the BSC as part of her family. Yeah. Right. That she's talking about the given and the chosen mm-hmm. and then like what what we make of those bonds and like how we value those things. No. And I think that that's right. Right. I mean, I was teaching marriage equality in my women in the law class just yesterday and the landscape of like public opinion and the legislative and judicial landscape around recognizing on um, de- decriminalizing homosexuality at all mm-hmm. was like 
that was happening well into the 70s and 80s. I mean, then California, which is often sort of heralded as this like safe haven for same sex couples, didn't ha- even have like anti discrimination laws that took into consideration sexual orientation until the 80s and 90s. You didn't have dom- like legally recognized domestic partnerships until the 90s, really. Mm-hmm. Um, and And even when, you know, gay marriage was on the table public opinion right california has um is one of the few states in the country that has um that it, you can directly democratically alter the state constitution right vis-a-vis mm-hmm. both on propositions and you had the same year obama elected you had a 58% vote yeah. on proposition 8 which defined marriage as between a man and a woman and so like it makes sense that that um you know that that doesn't exist in this book but i do think that the like the hints of it were there right this idea mm-hmm. that that um a family is something other than biological destiny right that biology is not destiny is is sort of um like a feminist refrain right that comes mm-hmm. up again in different moments over like feminist activism and you see kind of hints of that here right biology is not destiny but at the same time there's still this like total reverence for the this like thing called motherhood and it's um, Mm -hmm. sort of exalted in this way that I think undermines the the like radical potential of that this kind of like vision of the family that's something maybe maybe more queer that Christy plays with and so I was like Oh, uh, you're, you're like almost there, and like you didn't need to go all the way to to same sex marriage to get this to portray the family, you know, to offer this kind of more mm-hmm. queer and radical notion of what a family is. But like you could have left the motherhood thing, like <laughs> you could have been more radical there. I thought and so. I thought yeah. that to have those two things existing in the same space was really interesting, and I've been thinking a lot too about um, like how queer theory and um, how like LGBTQ activism deals with questions around motherhood and mothering and that there's like a whole discourse around. Um, and we talked about this a bit, like when the, in the tomboy discussion, right. That like white motherhood as this sort of um, obligation and like social status has a really long and sort of sinister history, but there are like other ways to mother, right? That need not attach you to that that particular um, model, right? Or mm-hmm. or lead you to reproduce those particular kinds of patriarchal norms, and that that like that mothering might be something we do with with other others that aren't you know our biological children is is like a um, a way that queer theory tries to think like resist motherhood by way of reference to mothering, for example, is just kind of like mm-hmm. one, one mode, one modality of thinking about that kind of stuff. But I was like, oh man, it could have been like, it would have been cool to hear them talk a bit more about, although, I mean, we know Richard Spear isn't like radically mothering in a queer sense, <laughs> Marianne, like it would have been cool to hear them talk a bit more about like, in what ways he's been a mother to Marianne, mm-hmm. like what it means for a dad to be a mother, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And like, yeah. and that they didn't, and, and, that, and if they hadn't like tiptoed so much around like whether or not the fathers would participate in this like surprise, I think I, there was like so much potential there. And then it like gets c- undercut, mm-hmm. I thought, um, by all this like mother father stuff. But I do. I, I love that that question is here. And I think it's um, I think it's dealt with well in spite of 
the commitment to side of the backtracking. Yeah. In spite of the commitment to like a very patriarchal family model. Yeah. Emily, I'm wondering if you, you can back up for the sake of some of our listeners who may not be as steeped in all of the things you are steeped in as a feminist political theorist and give like a little short, short definition of queer theory for everybody. These things that, that you're putting really from. exist as me. <laughs> <laughs> so a medium one. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so queer theory, like you'll find it under the rubric of like women and gender studies or women, gender and sexuality studies. And it sort of emerges. I mean, there's like earlier forms of it that people have heralded as kind of primary texts, but it really emerges as like an academic discourse in the nineties, um, in the early aughts. And it's sort of a rejoinder, but also a response to feminist theory and like the ways in which um, certain strains of feminist theory were committed to and reproducing a kind of gender binary. And um, so it's like like an addition, additional way of sort of theorizing the world that takes seriously um, the constructed nature of norms around heterosexuality and around Mm -hmm. um, particular modes of being across the gender spectrum. So you see like a lot of AIDS activism around in the, and linked to kind of the emergence of queer theory, you know, Judith Butler is sort of like heralded as one of the, the sort of creators of it, right? That gender mm-hmm. is a performance rather than mm-hmm. something kind of innate is um, one of the the like original sort of queer theories of of gender identity and gender um, or the experience of gender. And there's a lot of discourse around fam- like f- the role of the family and sort of reproducing um, various kinds of gendered norms and expectations mm-hmm. about like how to be in the world. And so like in liberal tradition, for example, you know, which is like the philosophical tradition that bred the liberal democracies that we live in in the West for for the most part. Like the family is seen as the kind of microcosm of society and you emerge from the patriarchal family as a citizen into, mm-hmm. you know, democratic life. And the you is- I wish everybody can see Emily's hand signals right now. <laughs> this is how I teach. Growing. So I teach block. Yeah. The family is this unit- <laughs> It's a patriarchal unit and the man emerges from the family into society. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so queer theory is like, there's a lot of discourse around the sort of constitutive outside. So how sort of taboos around what's not allowed constitute like desirable subjects. So like societies have a vested interest in producing subjects that um, are governable. And so mm-hmm. one of the things that's so radical about being queer is that it's thought to destabilize that right the queer subject is ungovernable in the traditional sense and so it's a a sort of radical threat to (laughs) radical threat to to the family um in like a good way Mm -hmm. destabilizes Mm -hmm. these sort of like norm these these norms that have been like violently imposed on folks who don't conform to them right so it's a a way about sort of like reclaiming the outside um or the margins which is Mm -hmm. also so there's a lot of overlap with like black black feminist thought in that regard too Mm -hmm. it is interesting that anna martin is you know she's a lesbian but she writes about very traditional families very Um, traditional families Yeah. yeah and i wonder if she like struggled with that at all um, well, I think that's how she grew up, right? She is writing right. from the child's perspective. And so, and she's very close to her parents from all indicators. And Yeah, but as, you know. I don't know, as as a woman, she doesn't have children. I feel mm-hmm. like, like being a, 
especially in the when she grew up in the seventies, really, like knowing 60s. that you weren't sixties, yeah, you, you yeah. weren't gonna have that traditional looking family. Mm-hmm. And her only writing about I mean, there are broken families, but you know, in terms of having a very untraditional family, like not having children. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not discussed at all in the VSC. And like, uh, like as Emily was talking about this, how being a mom is like the ultimate, like that's what you have to do to be a woman in society. Like as someone who doesn't have kids, like I definitely, this book kind of rubbed me the wrong way. Cause I was like, mm-hmm. okay, like, I guess, you know, it just keeps on hammering over the head. Like you need to have kids or like when there's a new mm-hmm. baby, it's like, oh my God, a new baby. And everyone just like celebrates the new baby. And it's, you know, and then there's like morbid, morbid destiny over there. It's like uh-huh. <laughs> that witch don't have kids. Yeah, the, the creepy She's old evil. <laughs> right? Exactly. She's failed as a woman. <laughs> right. Um, but it also made me think. Like reading these books, even as a kid, made me think that, which I didn't even think about till I read this particular book. Is like I'm I'm supposed to have that. I'm supposed to like mimic this sort of of life myself you know one of my favorite like feminist and queer theorists sarah ahmed wrote a recent book called living a feminist life where she tries to like bring feminist theory home is what she says and so like to kind of do feminist theory through the first person and through kind of talking about ways in which theory like living is is theoretical and vice versa and she does this bit where she's like one of my first feminist teachers was my aunties were my aunties and like imagine if they had been lesbian imagine if they had been queer aunties like what Mm -hmm. kind of feminist teaching that would have been like as a kid and like how Mm -hmm. how how different the world would look right if Mm -hmm. and, and like I don't know about you guys but there were women in my childhood who were unmarried and and didn't have children who had friends and it was like an unspoken yeah yeah, roommates and it was like this unspoken like open secret thing and like imagine imagine like what the world what what the world what like the possibilities could be if like that was not an open secret it was just Mm -hmm. a future of existence and like how I don't know like how formative that would be and how how much bigger the world would seem I think well I I think that you know, I think that we're starting to see that, you know, I mean, that's definitely how my kids are growing up. You know, many, many, many of their friends have parents who are either single parents by choice um, that adopted or um, had a kid on their own or gay or lesbian parents or even other arrangements, you know, to mm-hmm. to gay dudes and their lesbian friend decide to co-parent a child together with the three of them or various other Arrangements, you know, there's a billion ways to make a family, which is what Christy is really saying in the beginning. As me, here. you you help make a family. Oh, I don't know if we should talk about that on the podcast. Is that relevant <laughs> to this book? I mean, we can. If people Google me, they'll see. But I mean, you're on you found Good Morning America. You know, fair enough. <laughs> True. It's not a secret. I thought about that. Yeah. <laughs> I thought about that before I mentioned. It. I was like, well, Esme was on national morning television, so I think it's right. okay. Yeah, so I was a surrogate for a um, really good friend of mine from college and his husband. So my kids were three and five and watched me help make a family for a non-traditional family. Um, so, and they're really still close to him and and they, they all hang out and play. They call each other Frezens for friend cousins, which I think is a like portmanteau relevant for this book. Frezens. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. It's such a clunky word. <laughs> That's part of why it's fun. But they call like they call Ben and Eduardo Frunkles. 
But yeah, I do. I think at least in in places like Northern California, I think that that's definitely happening. And that there are obviously there are queer families all over this country, but they are, you know, have less or more visibility and less or more numbers depending on where they are. But I do think it's a it's a remarkable change because when you were talking about sort of the public opinion about marriage equality um, in the 90s, first of all, we didn't call it marriage equality. We just called it gay marriage or same-sex right. marriage. And, you know, I was at UC Berkeley in the mid-90s, arguably the most radical, you know, university in the world. And it was being debated. It wasn't like definitely we should have marriage equality. Like it was like discussed in my political science classes as like, what are the pros and cons? And like, you know, well, I mean, it was it's not even talked yeah. about that in the, our current highest court. Right. I mean, we had a, the Obergefell decision that made it the law of the land. You have a dissent, you know, three different dissents from current sitting justices who were like, this is the court has overstepped its bounds. This is a democratic, this is this is a democratic issue that needs to be resolved by the will of the people. And if you kick it back to the people, there's still over 50% of the population who's gonna say, no, it 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 threatens the sanctity of marriage. The and which is just like, and there's all kinds of strange arguments that justices make. I mean, I I read a justice. Roberts, he opens his dissent with the phrase, since the dawn of, from the dawn of human history, marriage has all, everywhere people have procreated, marriage has been defined as between a man and a woman. If I had a student write a paper that opened with the (laughs) sentence, from the dawn of human history, I would have been like, nope, sorry, you don't have evidence for that. You can't make that claim. Like... (laughs) Cross out, redo, resubmit. He's the chief justice of the Supreme Court of the United States, and he wrote that in 2015 in the Supreme Court. Yeah. It's depressing. It's really depressing. Anyway. I'm going to start using that phrase for everything now. (laughs) From the dawn of human history. Yeah. People have liked Tootsie Pops. (laughs) No, uh, root barrels. Ruby Barrels, yeah. <laughs> Since the dawn of the 20th century. Uh, uh, um, I think that about covers it. <laughs> I mean, we I don't know yet whether um, uh, Christy's mom and Watson are suffering from white savior complex by adopting an Asian baby, but I, I assume we'll, we'll learn more about that as we move through their adventures with Emily. <laughs> yeah, I'm curious if we will. My guess is that we won't because we're oh, still in this... We're still in this we don't see color, everyone's equal, inclu- you know, version of inclusion, right? We're not really talking about diversity and equity. We're just talking about inclusion in the Babysitter's Club usually. Um, and so they do adopt Emily Michelle from Vietnam. Um, I have some thoughts on her name later other than the Emily part of it. Um, but they – um, uh, okay, I'll say that first because it's not important. I just don't understand <laughs> if you already have a son named David Michael, why you would then name a child Emily Michelle. <laughs> it's like literally the same name. <laughs> and I didn't even think about that. You like to – apparently you like to name first names fine. Like that's a thing. I don't know. They're not from the South, so I'm not sure why that's so central. Um, international – uh, listeners, the Southern United States has a lot of two name, first name people. But why would you use Michelle when you use Michael? Not even that long ago. Like they're only yeah, five years apart. 
I didn't even think about that. So that wears me out. But we can't call her just Emily because it'll get confusing with you. So I'm going to have to just roll with it. They should have named her Harmony Melody. Yeah, probably. (laughs) Ooh, Harmony Melody or Melody Harmony? I don't know. (laughs) I feel like Melody Harmony. Yeah, the melody comes first. Yeah, I think Mm, so. You're right. Literally. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Back to her being Vietnamese. Um, I am, I'm very interested in this and I actually don't, my guess is that Anna Martin's not going to explore it much. Mm -hmm. It's just like, yay, they adopted a baby. I did like Watson and Elizabeth's explanation of like, we've already made plenty of Mm -hmm. children and there are lots of other children in this world that, that could use families. So I think they, they definitely have made plenty of children (laughs) between the two of them. So, um, you know, I think that that's nice. Um, and I know that trans racial and trans country adoption is really complicated. Um, and, but it, it also, I think this is some of when we see Anna Martin kind of reflecting the times, right. Cause it was definitely continued to be on the rise, you know, through the 60s, 70s and into the eighties. Um, I think it, it may still be on the rise now. I didn't get the latest statistics. So I'll post an article about it, but rather than the kind of like geopolitical piece of it. I, you know, Emily, you're right. We don't have evidence yet of white savior stuff, but I think it's really complicated. Not, I think, I mean, the data show us it's really complicated just for identity building too. Um, and it's some of what you've talked about, Anne, and your um, experiences with sort of micro um, aggressions and um, more subtle forms of racism, that there's lots of data and, and sort of qualitative studies of adoptees, particularly adoptees from Asian countries, largely Korea, China, Vietnam are three of the biggest countries that people in the U.S., what Caucasian white people in the U.S. adopted from um, talking about this paradox of, you know, fitting in and feeling feeling like it's normal, it's part of your family, but also you're, you're undeniably from of Asian descent, right? You don't look the same as your family. But then people say to you all the time, like, oh, but you're white, like your parents are white. And like, you know, you're more like a white person, which I know is something. And even though you have Asian parents, um, is something that you've heard as well. And that kind of complicated piece Mm -hmm. of like, how do you develop a, a secure racial and ethnic identity when it feels muddled like that? And when sometimes you know, I think some families make a good effort to, you know, learn about um, the origin culture that their kids come from. And I know some examples of that in in my community right now where the kids feel very connected to their country of origin. But I don't think that was the general practice in the 80s. Mm-hmm. I think the general mm-hmm. practice in the 80s is like, we love you and we're here and you're, we're your family and we don't see color, which is much more confusing for the kid, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I've definitely had people well in new york it was either what are you i got asked that a lot especially by like taxi drivers like i'd get in again the taxi like so what are you and i'd be like well i'm from california they're like no but you know what no, are but where you? are you from yeah, yeah. exactly and then i mean you're I, like what are you i know <laughs> um but i did have a a white male tell me that i he's like well you know you're like not really japanese and I, it like, it was bad. I, I yeah. still, yeah. And I was just like, okay, like I can't teach you on like this bench in this park right now. So mm-hmm. I'm going to just like save it for later. But 
I remember like, being I don't very even know how to respond to that. Yeah, <laughs> I was just like, "What do you mean?" It's and it's interesting because it's both of my parents are Japanese. You know, they're they were probably a generation older than most of the other Japanese kids I knew, and they mm-hmm. were in internment camps. Um, and I think because of that, they I feel like their culture they didn't really want to celebrate it as much because they mm-hmm. wanted to like fit in. Mm-hmm. and assimilate based on just like how they grew up but so whereas like I don't speak Japanese and you know I'm not like I didn't go to church, like Buddhist church every Sunday even though my brother did that was mm-hmm. a big thing he graduated from Dharma school I did not um, <laughs> but like it was hard to explain to people like no but my parents are like actually like really Japanese Like my mom grew up in Japan and culturally and how I was raised, I was raised very much of that culture. But like, just because I'm not like out there, like, I don't know, like showing up every day. But it's like, I'm not not out there doing all the like more stereotypical, like Japanese American things. Like I don't, I didn't belong to the JACL or like, I didn't do a lot of like college activities that was part of the Japanese American community um, that people probably didn't see me as being super mm-hmm. Japanese. Um, but how do you explain to someone my parents' history, <laughs> like yeah. how right. I was actually raised, you know? But like in Emily Michelle's case, even mm-hmm. if you had white parents, it doesn't make you less Japanese, right? Like right. you right. may have been raised with less of those cultural things, but like that's still part of your history. And you still could have been put in an internment camp if you were alive in the 40s, right? Mm-hmm. Like right. it's... Yeah. That's the thing that I think makes it even more complicated because at least when you get that kind of comment, you can be like, bitch, please, like, you come talk to my mom for two minutes and, like, you'll, right. you'll see that I'm Japanese. But you'll if you don't have that to to lean back on, yeah, that, and it's, it's hard for identity yeah. development. And I think also, you know, adoption is really expensive and only people who had money could really do it. So mm-hmm. you have a lot of these these babies being adopted into wealthy families, which makes it even more complicated, I think. Yeah. I mean, I think- this Emily Michelle is going to grow up with just like a toaster for every birthday. She's going to have so many toasters. So many toasters. Top of the line, latest model. Her so other wait. kids. <laughs> Are you actually suggesting that this is what Watson gives his children for birthday parties and stuff? There's no other reason why they would have had four toasters in the, in the <laughs> kitchen. Yeah. They might need five now. They have another kid. Oh, yeah. They're going to have seven more breakfasts to make every day. Oh, man. Wait, can we on the on the transracial adoption thing? I was noticing I was thinking, too, about, you know, this is not the case in the case of Emily Michelle, but like when white people adopt black babies and you and you like, you know, don't know how to do black hair and like the Mm -hmm. kind of social stigma around those sorts of things. And and then I rem- remembered as I was going down that rabbit hole that Christy talks about Jesse being black in a couple different contexts in this book, not just introducing her. Then the moment when Stacy meets her for the first time and she has this pause where she's like, and this is Jesse. And then her inner monologue or her narration or whatever is like, well, of course, like Stacy knows Jesse's black. So she like pre- presume, presumably she would have already guessed that this is Jesse, but like, I'm going to introduce her. Yeah, anyway. that was, was awkward. Like, that was weird to me. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know. I, so I sort of took it as the opposite of weird because I'm thinking about like old people that I met in New York who, when describing a person would be like, you know, she's wearing a red coat. You know, she's kind of tall. She's black. 
you know, like they like people yeah, that like, like whisper don't it. say black out loud. Yeah, I took mm-hmm. this as kind of the opposite of that. Like that's true, right? Like Stacy knows that Jesse joined the BSC and that as family moved into her house, like she's talked. You know, the BSC but- has talked about the problems that Jesse has had with people being racist in Stony Brook, and Stacy is close to the rest of the BSC. So she right. w- and and we've we've talked a bunch about how Jesse's family is one of the only black families. So if she's the only black person there of the right age, Stacy would know that was Jesse. Yeah, but that's right. like, but they know like Stacy already knows who Jesse is. Like it's like okay, if you met someone as me that didn't know me, but you had talked about me a lot, you wouldn't be mm-hmm. like, oh, but they you knew know, that was Anne because she's Asian. Yeah, like yeah. no, I was Anne because you had talked about me before. <laughs> Right, right. And I had moved into this other person's right. house or something. <laughs> but and also like what she does is she's like, should I introduce her? Because she obviously, as the only black person in the room, already knows this is Jesse. And I'm like, well, that's not why you introduce your friend to your other friend. Like, <laughs> so right. they know like who in the room it is. It's like, because you know, they get to know each other. It's like, yeah. Jesse, we're, like, we're so glad you could meet Stacy. Stacy, Jesse lives in your room. How weird is that? Like, so glad you guys are in the same room. Mm-hmm. The BSC's all together. And she's like, mm, do I introduce her? Like, obviously, Stacy knows that it's Jesse because Jesse's, she knows Jesse's black and Jesse, that's the only black person in this room. So, like, yeah. maybe I don't introduce her. I was like, what the hell? <laughs> I know. I feel like they should have Anna Martin should have just named Jesse like Jesse Black, oh, so on. she could just stop saying it all the time. Because <laughs> oh. we did not like, like that one. Claudia Japan. Yeah, yeah. And then the other ones would be Don California. Yeah, Stacy Diabetes. <laughs> Christy Bossy. Marianne Baby. Christy had to change her last name to Rich after her mom yeah. got married. They all changed their last names. Christy Mansion. <laughs> oh my god! So the the other thing that I felt bad for Emily Michelle about is this idea. You know, we see some some of the. You know, so far we've talked about how the Thomas Brewers have had this like very idyllic blended family experience. Like they all get along, and like Christy's had some like lack of sureness about Watson, but in general, it's been like easy peasy, lemon squeezy. And then we see some cracks in it in this book where like the end of chapter seven, David Michael and Karen and Andrew aren't getting along that well. And David Michael says something like, well, Thomas's love Thomas is more and brewers sometimes love brewers more. And like, this is just how it is. And Christy is like very concerned about this as, as her, in her position of like in the middle of everything and of the family all the time. You know, she's, she's alone. She's the only kind of middle schooler and the only like older girl and all of these other things. And she sort of pins her hopes when Emily Michelle comes, she says something directly about like, she's going to fix it. Basically. I'm trying to, yeah. So, okay. I found it. So it's on the second to last page of the book. She says, Emily Michelle, she's my sister and David Michaels and Sam's and Charlie's. She's Andrews and Karen's. She's the one person in our family who isn't a Brewer or a Thomas. Her mother is mom and her father is Watson, but she isn't their baby, if you know what I mean. She's just ours. She belongs to Watson and Andrew and Karen, and she belongs to mom and my brothers and me. She would bring us together. She would unite us. That was what mom and Watson's wedding was supposed to have done, but it hadn't exactly worked. Emily just might do the trick. I was like, no pressure, tiny Vietnamese baby. Like, what? Yeah, that's no good. 
that's a lot to put on a two-year-old in a new culture and a new, new world. So I was, you know, not that they have giant things to fix. I think the, the arguments between Andrew and Karen and David Michael are super normative. And I actually was glad that she finally put some in because most blended families are not seamlessly blended. Right. Um, and I just, I really, I think that was supposed to be a very sweet couple of paragraphs about, you know, the hope of adoption and the like sort of miracle of chosen and constructed families back to what yeah. you were talking about, Emily. But I just felt like it was way too much to pin on Emily Michelle. Yeah, I agree. You know what I was thinking too about this book? I mean, so like I was a child of a kind of divorce that is even a different kind of divorce than any we see in the BSC so far. Like mm-hmm. my parents were very like, very much like we are still a family. And so when both of my parents then had long-term partners, there those were relationships that were sort of like outside of the family in a way. Like there was never any pretense that that my parents' partners were going to be responsible for parenting us in any way. Like like we would have a relationship with them of course, but it would be something different than a, like a parent-child relationship, which is not the case with the Watson Brewers obviously. I mean the kids are younger, but like, you know, even in this book Christie's like Dave and Michael, you know, her and her mom have this moment where or Christia has this rem- moment of rem- memory where she's like, remember when I tried to marry you off to the mailman? And she's like, David Michael wanted a father. And so it's like, mm-hmm. there really is like filling in the this like a- a missing parent role in this context. But like, I I mean, I when I think about, I don't think about my family as like a blended family. I mean, like I have, I guess technically I have step siblings. Yeah. Several, several of them. <laughs> but like, we're, we're not like never- a... You never lived together though, right? Yeah, yeah. But that That's was intentional, I think. Yeah. But like yeah. I, it's interesting. I, I was you just thinking didn't about have a missing parent. Like right, you know, right. it's not, you know, Christy's dad is gone. Right. So. But I wonder when we get to spoiler alert for anyone who hasn't who for anyone who for some reason is reading along with our podcast for the first time ever. <laughs> yeah, sorry. <laughs> when we get to um the Don and Marianne blended family thing. Like that one is mm-hmm. always, was always weird to me because it's like, they sort of mimic like a very traditional parent relationship, but like Don still has a, a dad, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. But he's not there. I guess. I don't know. Like for day to day, you know, the vast majority of the time she lives with her mom. Yeah. I think it's just, it, there's there. a, there's like a, I think in that sense, I think that's another way that the BSC universe is committed to like a really traditional, like nuclear family. family. Yeah. Nuclear family. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, that's I true. was just thinking about that. Cause I think there are like other ways to get divorced also <laughs> that are like oh. sort of queer and sort of radical. Yeah. For sure. For sure. But I think it also, I think it also just speaks to the vast, like the wide array of choices that people have to make in blended families, because I think that there are blended families where, you know, let's, let's forget about Charlie and Sam for a second. Let's say everybody, it was just like David, Michael and Karen and Andrew, like you could make the choice to keep the like serious parenting decisions, like David, Michael to Elizabeth and Karen and Andrew to Watson. Right. Um, But the risk of that, you know, from a, from a psychology, like family therapy standpoint is that then the family doesn't truly blend. Right. Right. So there's not, you're really, you're seeing that person as an auxiliary parent. Then in the case of like, 
your family or, or some other kind of relationship, as you mentioned, when you guys mm-hmm. were a little bit older and, you know, there, you, you didn't have step siblings living with you and all of those kinds of things, it doesn't make as much sense. But when you've got little kids, that can be really confusing. And yeah. just the nature of family life, you're going to have to, someone's going to, different will have to drive you to soccer practice and these kinds of things, you know, you're going to have to ask questions of both parents over time. One of my um, favorite kind of like essays and sort of queer feminist theory does a, a sort of posits like why this, this the nuclear family as the idyllic thing why does it share a word with like the most dangerous kind of war mm-hmm. and like what do we make of that those that the, the mm-hmm. same word describes those two sort of vastly different things yeah but I do th- I do think like even I do think even in divorce this there's still like the nuclear family is alive and well. Oh yeah. <laughs> in, in Stony Brook, Connecticut, <laughs> the white For nuclear sure. family. Yeah. yeah. It's really interesting actually thinking back like, like how little the dads do um, as someone who is in like a, a very egalitarian parenting marriage. Like, you know, my husband literally does do the same. Like there are days when I work and he does all of the things and vice versa. Like there are other books from this time that model that better than the BS, like the Arthur books about the aardvark. Like his dad is like super progressive. <laughs> he's so always, he does all the cooking and cleaning. Like the mom is always just like sitting around and he's always wearing like a button, like an ERA mm-hmm. button or like, <laughs> like dad's Wait, really? apron. Yeah. 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 That's Mark Brown's amazing. like a feminist. Yeah. So I'm just thinking, like, if that could be modeled in the Arthur books, like, why, <laughs> why couldn't we get a little bit more of that in, um, in the BSC? Yeah, Mr. Pike's the only one because they're artworks. Yeah, <laughs> super queer, the queerest yeah. animal. Yeah, the patriarchal human order does not apply. <laughs> so okay, and what do you, you? You got a lot of things you could talk about today. What tell us? Tell us what jumped out at you, other than the 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 shaming of you as a non mother in society. Yeah, shame, shame. <laughs> Point at me and say shame. Um, well, one thing I wanted to talk about was we didn't talk about Stacy comes back. Yeah, that was fun. So she comes back to help everyone take the like a hundred children to Sudzu's carnival. Which I think it ended up being 21 children, mm-hmm. which I feel like that's too many children to bring to a carnival. Like, <laughs> it's just too much. It was but perfect. She, it was just three kids each, three kids per sitter. Oh, yeah. And they spent like five hours organizing the groups, which I was like, how long is this going on in the book? It was like four pages. I love <laughs> it so much. <laughs> I love that section. That part bored me. Um. <laughs> But so when Stacy um, attends the BSC meeting, she has a new haircut. Mm-hmm. And it made me think, what kind of haircut does she have? So I'll read this little passage. Don says, you cut your hair. And Stacy says, yeah, a little. Do you like it? I went to this really punk place and told the guy not to make it too punk. Okay. First of all, Stacy would not go to a really punk place. <laughs> no, no, it's the punk place on the Upper West Side. You've never heard of it? Yeah. <laughs> what, what would that punk place be called? Like, 
lay lay punk she goes to she goes she takes the l train to williamsburg and goes to wherever uh the the woman who used to write letters for salinger lived yeah. <laughs> i mean williamsburg in the late 80s that it's, was like when then they might be giants were living in like a, a like basement like thing with leakage in that time <laughs> like that was a scary scary place yeah, not no more. There are tech bros everywhere. I know well, they left actually is. in the middle, early pandemic, so the the artists are still here. They might be giants. Have a good song about what makes a family. I'll link to it in this since they came up naturally. Anyway, go on. <laughs> naturally, Le punk. I don't know. Have we have we ever talked about one of Esme's most defining defining uh, personality traits, which is her favorite band? Is they might be giants. Even maybe even more than Swatch. <laughs> okay uh, none of these are personality traits go back to Le punk what else okay well what do you think how do you think she got her haircut i'm thinking like it's still permed mm-hmm. it's like very short like 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 air airlobe length and mm-hmm. maybe a bit asymmetrical but yeah still permed yeah like mm-hmm. that kind of um i can't uh, picture it mm, yeah i know what you're talking about Anne. Yeah. It's like a like an asymmetrical short uh-huh. bob, and then the, the like it would be kind of high on the one side, right, and short on the other. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, almost like a it, it's almost like a, a like a shaped like I I think like maybe it's a little punk, but in the curliness, it would imitate some black hairstyles a mm-hmm. little bit. Yeah, yeah, like, like you might see it on a different world. Oh my god, I was just gonna say that, <laughs> or maybe Fresh Prince. Mm-hmm. Mm. I just watched the Fresh Prince like reunion <laughs> special. Oh, they did a reunion. Yeah, I read a tweet about that. How was it? Um, I cried because <laughs> they did this. They did this whole tribute to Uncle Phil. Oh, um, yeah. So it was really sad. But Will Smith sits down with uh, the the OG Aunt Viv. Oh, okay. nice. Because they haven't talked in twenty seven years, guys. What else is in this book, Anne? <laughs> so carnivals. So carnivals are a big part of this book. It's where they decide to take the children for mm-hmm. the Mother's Day surprise, which is really, I guess, Emily and Michelle, but also the carnival. Mm-hmm. And it is, as we know, I love carnivals. <laughs> very much. Very much love. Even as an adult, I would I worked in Midtown and... Oftentimes, I would make my coworker go to David Buster's with me after work. I'm sorry. <laughs> like the one in Times Square? Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so I would go there. I mean, okay, I'm going to go off on a tangent here, but I would go to David Buster's and I had my, you know, my DV uh, power card that I would charge up. <laughs> Am I like so confused right now? I'm genuinely confused. <laughs> and I would go, go there. I play like a bunch of games, and then I got this like this really cool pyramid light, and like you pushed it against the hard surface, and it would turn on, and it was like blinking. So I brought it back to my office, and I put it by my desk, and we had this coworker who like. We're like in a cubicle that was like a quadrant, you know? So it was three girls and this guy named Frank. 
who didn't like us because we were too loud. And I put the pyramid light like on this in the center, so it was like in all of our cubicles. <laughs> and he like complained to HR about it. That's <laughs> <laughs> so aggro. Oh my god. Yeah, poor Frank. I know. Um so this Anne's Anne's oh wait, so Emily, sorry, do you have questions? I Yes, but I don't know where to begin. Just okay. carry on. <laughs> I just, we, our elementary school used to do a carnival every year as a fundraiser. And Anne would just clean up. Like she's legitimately quite good at carnival games, even though they're all like, maybe less so at our, at our fundraiser, are they stacked against you? But like, we would also go to the state, the California state fair every year. And Anne can actually win like the milk jug things and like the balloon pop, like the things that people can't win that are like literally made so that you lose to make the carnival money and can win those things. Mm-hmm. You have only been to the California state fair that one time we went the weekend Aunt Mill got married. What? Okay. Yeah. When this whole pandemic is over, we're going. Okay. Okay. Um, so yeah. So Anne is the one person that all those games are made for so that you can watch her walking around the carnival with the giant teddy bear and no one else can actually win it. Yeah, I'm not sure why I like carnival. I don't, I mean, I just like the game aspect, really. And maybe the food aspect. <laughs> and maybe so, the ride, maybe the ride aspect, too. So everything about carnivals. And maybe how, how they smell. And, the, you know. What about the fun house? You Scary know, I, I'm not a fun house person. So mm. I'm with Karen. I would have been the person getting the hell out of there, probably. Esme and I used to play a lot of games at the state fair. And I don't think I ever won the milk jug. I was more into the spraying the the water into the clown mouth. Oh, yeah. Well, those are those are the good one because someone wins every time. Mm-hmm. So if you get like six of your friends, one of you is going to win. Right. Because right. it's a competition between players instead of just you versus the house. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So, yeah, carnivals, there were no men. This sounded like a very uh, wholesome carnival, no creepy carnies around. <laughs> this is in Stony Brook, so. How do, they, how do they staff a whole carnival without any carnies? I don't know. That seems unlikely. The babysitter's <laughs> agency. Yeah. They're know. all smoking cigarettes behind the booth. Yeah. Like, go in. It's fine. Yeah. I did think it was funny that, like, the bearded lady, the kids were like, do you think there'll be a bearded lady? It's like, oh, God, the horror. Yeah, yeah that was those, that was in my SJW tallies, both the half man, half woman and bearded lady, I feel like, are things that probably still exist in carnivals around the world now, but not things that we talk about in that way. One of our former guests, Melissa Walker, um, episode Logan Likes Marianne, if you guys want to listen to it. She took her kids recently to um, the, the quote-unquote freak show at Coney Island. Oh, dear. On the recommendation of another friend. He was like, no, it's really great. Like, there's, like, the bearded lady and, like, you know, and, like, they actually let the kids, like, engage with them now and ask them mm-hmm. questions. Mm-hmm. So it's just, like, so it's more like, you know, kids will be like, oh, like, why do you have a beard? And she'll explain why she has a beard. And they make it more of, like, an educational thing. And they start to, they like learn about the quote unquote freaks. Okay. Yeah. I don't know. I guess. But then they're still called freaks. They're taking back the word freak. Okay. Emily, you might have to take a side trip and report back to us about what you think about this. Yeah. I'm going to 
Um, the other thing I wanted to point out was when, uh, like Christy's mom was emotional. Mm-hmm. Uh, Christy said that, uh, immediately mom began to cry. It wasn't that sobbing, unhappy crying that mothers do when they're watching something like Love Story or Brian's song on TV. <laughs> From the blank expression on Emily's face, I'm taking she does not know what either of these movies are. Nope. It's kind of like it's you've seen Beaches, right? Mm-mm. The Notebook. I've seen the notebook. <laughs> okay, so I was a teenager when that came out, so I've seen it many, many. Say so no. Times. It's like I feel like Notebook is the movie people talk about that made you cry. Uh, maybe for your Literally generation, anything makes me cry. <laughs> or like when Hot American me- Summer, Jack. <laughs> Weekend uh, at Bernie's. Weekend at Bernie's. <laughs> Check. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but like for Esme and I, I would say it was Beaches. Oh, for so, sure. You know, and then I guess for for Christy's mom, Love Story and Brian's song were two real movies. Love Story was like this really like, you know, I think it was like Ali McGraw and uh, Ryan O'Neill, mm-hmm. and they kind of had the sad love story. And Brian's song, I believe, was about like an athlete who who had cancer. Both in the 80s, very big uh, pop culture touch points of very sad things that would make you cry. That's funny. I didn't catch that she mentioned those. Maybe just because they were such obvious references to me. I just rolled right over. <laughs> so obvious. And then just on Asian babies. <laughs> Go ahead. I did, I did just a really quick search of celebrities who have adopted Asian children. And the list is like... I don't know. It's like, you know, obviously Angelina Jolie, mm-hmm. which I kind of want to talk about because she probably is the most famous celebrity to have gained so much exposure for having adopted an Asian baby, partly because I think when she did it, there was like social media and like the internet and it's just more mm-hmm. exposure. But it, you know, she has. I, I don't know how many adopted children she has. I think at least four. So many. Um, so many. But like she definitely has that white savior thing about her in, I think, in in pop culture and just the media because, mm-hmm. I mean, it's great. She's like very, she has a lot of organizations. She does a lot of good work. But I think the idea of seeing this very wealthy, very famous, beautiful woman with like, you know, eight children um, Maddox and Pax. Maddox is from Cambodia and Pax is from Vietnam. Maybe mm-hmm. Pax knows Emily Michelle. <laughs> Who knows? Amazing. <laughs> you killed Esme. <laughs> you know what's interesting yeah. about Angelina Jolie too? Because she's like kind of a um, a frustrating figure for like popular feminist writers like people don't know how to place her politics because mm-hmm. she does a lot of um you know humanitarian work and she's been but but she's like kind of interesting like the way she's moved through public and sort of like how she's navigated you know being a woman in a male-dominated business and like all that kind of stuff make her sort of hard to you know she, sort of hard to pin down from the um from the sort of popular feminist perspective there's a lot of disagreement over like whether Ooh. she's a good feminist icon or not. Like, could you teach a class about this? Oh, yeah. Sign me up. 
for the first time Anne wants to take one of your classes, Emily. <laughs> well, I'm going to assign you queer theory in that class, so I don't know <laughs> what you think you're getting. <laughs> I've had a couple students write like research papers on her. Interesting. Oh, interesting. Or as like a controversial feminist figure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. She is controversial. Anyway, in terms of Claudia's candy, we got Red Hots. I believe perhaps the first mention of Red Hots. I think it's the first mention of Red Hots, yes. Yeah. How do you guys feel about Red Hots? Too spicy. <laughs> Too spicy, yeah. Not a fan. Not a fan. By the way, Esme um, sent me a box of Malamars. Yes, I did. <laughs> they are delicious. Let me just say that. You're welcome. It's nice to have some gratitude for my gifts. They're very good. Um, <laughs> got cheese doodles, Cracker Jacks. Eh. I don't know. Cracker Jacks just really aren't good. Um, oh, I kind of like Cracker Jacks. Really? Mm-hmm. I like I like the little prize that comes in the Cracker Jacks, but not the, not the popcorn really. Go back to uh, the carnival. <laughs> yeah, uh, M and M's. She has some whole wheat crackers for Dawn, mm-hmm. and licorice strings. Oh, she, doesn't she also give them goldfish shaped pretzels later on? I think wasn't it separate goldfish and pretzels? Or no, they're goldfish shaped pretzels. Yeah, I wrote it down because it was such an Anne line because Claudius, like Christy said, I love pretzel goldfish. They're so good. Never even seen these before. Yeah, they're. I mean, they're made by the goldfish company, uh, but they're pre- little pretzels. Um, but the line, I now I need to know who said it because I wrote it down because I wrote next to it. So Anne, because I was thinking back about how you said like root beer barrels are fun. Because they're shaped like a barrel specifically. <laughs> and that made them a better candy from your perspective. Oh, yeah. It's right after the licorice strings. Mm-hmm. And Claudia says it. Oh, Don and Stacy, I've got pretzels for you. I know that's not very interesting, but at least the pretzels look like little goldfish. It's true. <laughs> You've never seen pretzel goldfish? They're made by like Pepper's Pepper Farms. Farm. They're like in the goldfish bags. Huh. They're just pretzels. You know, they're I never, so good. I, I love never them. got goldfish as kids. Oh, interesting. My favorite are the Parmesan ones. They're in they're the green bu- bag, mm-hmm. the bag that has green on the bottom. This just reminds me of, of combos. Combos are so good. I know. Anyway, <laughs> I feel like combos are something that Claudia would have in her room. Yeah, but, but they're expensive, only occasionally, only when she's making a lot of money. Yeah, yeah, that's true. <laughs> um, and that's it. Yeah, Tally's, um, we got another book where Claudia is described as both exotic and having almond-shaped eyes. It makes me very uncomfortable when they it's say like, both. Okay, it's every book it's basically. Ramping up. It's ramping yeah. up. Also, yeah. did you notice that she talked about Emily Michelle's skin? Yeah, she did talk about her skin. But I also was like, well, babies have a lot of, you know, babies do have nice skin. But it's not, uh, the the almond-shaped eyes is actually ramping up, but exotic hasn't appeared for a couple of books actually in. So, but it's, I get why it would feel like it's every book. Um, Two bossy, one shy, um, one health food, and three individual. So that's definitely ramping up. Um, Dawn being an individual is pretty much every book now. And when is Dawn getting a face tattoo? That's what I want to know. (laughs) Well, we didn't talk about her necklace yet. Oh, yeah. I know. I'm awesome. (laughs) Yeah. Marianne says Marianne and Dawn says I'm awesome. That's, I would totally wear oh, that. I should say <laughs> I need one for Christmas. I'm Dawson. Get it? No. Awesome. Yeah. Dawson. Yeah. Dawson. I, mean, I, I understood it, <laughs> but I didn't like it. What was everyone's favorite weird line? Um, I have a classic line. You know what I'm talking about? 
the the girl with colitis goes by. That's fine. That's my favorite, obviously. Mine is your epidermis is showing. That was my favorite. That's good. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah, I really liked the girl with colitis goes by. (laughs) Yeah. Also, colitis is pretty gross if you think about it. I know. Well, that's why I thought it was a good weird line because, like, why is Dawn even – why? like, why would colitis be the word that she hears as a 13-year-old? Or, like, presumably she heard that as, like, an 8-year-old because it's songs old and it's not, like, the first time she's hearing it is when she's 13. So, like, when she was 8, she was like, oh, there's a weird – there's a song about a girl with colitis. Like, what? Well, but when – I feel like when you're very young, you just make up words in songs – that get, because you know you don't know a lot of words like as someone who sang like Maxwell's Silver Hammer as a three and four year old there's definitely words in that song that I didn't know and I just made up like English sounding syllables to uh, fill in the blanks so you think she just made colitis up not knowing what yeah. it was interesting that you go to one what I was just making up le- letters like <laughs> yeah of course I still don't know all the words what do you want to go with epidermis or a girl with colitis your, your epidermis is showing is very good Excellent. Yeah. Um, what should we pizza toast to in this book? Being gay. <laughs> Even though we don't actually get any representation of it. Oh, we haven't talked about Claudia's totally um, uplifting feminist illustrations on their invitation. Oh, God. Yeah. 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 Let's let's pizza toast to tired moms <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> holding bags. <laughs> Let me read it. It says... Also, our invitations have been designed, made, and mailed out. They were pretty cute, if I do say so myself. Claude had drawn two pictures of them in the upper left-hand corner with a totally dragged-out-looking mom. She was holding a briefcase in one hand and a vacuum cleaner in the other, and a baby was strapped to her chest. Her hair looked frazzled, and there were bags under her eyes. In the lower right-hand corner was a rested mom. She was sitting in a lawn chair with a book in one hand and a glass of iced tea or something. And the other, she was smiling and the bags were gone. You too can have it all. <laughs> I was saying, I thought about the movie Mona Lisa Smile when I read that. <laughs> oh man, I forgot about that movie. Uh-huh. I saw that movie once. Yeah. I'm fine with toasting to Claude's illustrations. I'm fine with toasting to, to being gay. Let's toast um, to totally dragged out moms. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Great. Yeah. All right. Pizza toast to totally dragged out moms. To totally totally dragged out moms. This episode of Stuck in Stony Brook is now adjourned. Thank you to Anna Martin for everything. Stuck in Stony Brook is edited by Emily Crandall. Theme song written and recorded by Gary Schaller, performed by the band Kid Kit. You can follow us on Instagram at Stuck in Stony Brook or find us on our website, stuckinstonybrook.com. Need some books that we mentioned? Buy them from our bookshop and support both a local independent bookstore and your favorite series literature analysis podcast. Find us at bookshop.org slash shop slash stuck in Stony Brook. Lastly, if you're feeling dibly generous and you want to rate us and review us on Apple Podcasts, that would be super helpful. You're the best friends a girl could ask for.